News Now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, a little iffy day here in Camels. Not sure if it's going to break for sun or going to stick with the clouds. Uh, nonetheless, it's a good day to sit down and listen to some good talk radio. We've got a packed show for you. Uh, we're going to dive into the Omar Cotter issue in a bit with former trial lawyer Sandy Garasino joining us in just a little while. Uh, we're also going to take the entire back half of the show. We usually talk to TRU's Jeffrey Myers every Tuesday. We're going a little more in-depth in light of the Mueller report being uh, finished and uh, completed uh, and handed in over the weekend. So we'll take a deep dive into what we do and what we don't know with Jeffrey Myers. But first up, uh, some exciting news out of UBC Okanagan. They've created the first ever nanocomposite biomaterial heart valve, uh, which is big news when you talk about heart transplants. So to talk about that, real pleasure to be joined by UBC Okanagan graduate researcher with the Heart Valve Performance Laboratory, Dylan Good. Good morning, Dylan. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing really well as well. So tell me a little bit about uh, the uh, the nanocomposite heart valve. I mean, what is this? Uh, why the big deal? And, and how'd you go about creating it? Uh, well, first, I think it has to do with the, the material itself. Um, most heart valves now are either a mechanical heart valve um, or they use uh, either pig or cow tissue um, to be able to make the heart valve. Um, but the issue with that is uh, the tissue itself won't last over a long period of time. So the need for uh, synthetic material uh, to be able to replace that and be able to last, um, hopefully, the, the lifespan of the, the patient is uh, it, it's, it's super important. Um, obviously, no one wants to do multiple surgeries. So if you can do it once, it's, it's probably a, a lot better. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, and uh, how we did it, uh, really the mastermind uh, behind the material is uh, my supervisor, Dr. Uh, Hadi Mohammadi, um, who is pretty much a genius. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it's his own little recipe and uh, his uh, mind that really came up with it. Is he listening? Are you bucking for a raise there? <laughs> uh, Dylan, tell me a little bit about nanocomposites. My understanding from a little bit of research ahead of talking to you is that the older material um, had some serious downsides, uh, a short, uh, short-term sort of lifespan in uh, the heart transplant uh, person involved, et cetera, et cetera. So what are nanocomposites and why do they offer um, a longer lasting lifespan and, and sort of an easier overall transplant as far as the body itself welcoming in this new material? Uh, yeah, so a, a nanocomposite really, it comes from the word nano. It just means that it's very small scale. So this, uh, this nanocomposite material is uh, made with the polyvinyl alcohol, and then they use uh, a bacterial cellulose, which is a nanofiber, um, to give it its real strength. So why is it important and uh, uh, a more suitable option is uh, it's, both one biocompatible um obviously you're going to need that you're going to be putting it into someone's body but also it can provide um strength and durability that uh no other um like cow or pig tissue would be able to do um which is what you want you want something that can uh, last the, the lifetime of the patient Okay, so uh, you guys have developed this thing, obviously very exciting. Um, where are we now between, okay, we have this thing and it's going to go out and be broadly used out there and bring some, some much-needed relief on that front? Uh, where in this process are we? Um, there, there definitely is still more work to be done. The, the material itself is very promising. Uh, the next step would be really to um, add uh, an endothelial layer, which really the endothelial layer is the, 
the layer that's inside the heart that helps with the biocompatibility. Um, if we are able to add that to the material, then it could be a real, real breakthrough in the whole industry, not just for heart valves, but for any sort of synthetic material inside someone's uh, a body. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Now, what stands between, uh, if there's a hurdle there, what, what's sort of in our way of, of getting that done? Um, uh, well, just the logistics of uh, attaching an endothelial layer to this material and having it stay there for the, the lifetime, um, it's the, the, that's the really the hurdle. Yeah. Making sure that it's on there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, I assume you're testing this thing. What is that sort of, what do you guys look at? I'm obviously, when you, when you invent something or come up with something, there's a process between getting it out into the world. Um, how do you test it, and, and what kind of sort of parameters do you have from uh, whatever governing or organization there is to say, okay, we need you to do A, B, and C, and then uh, if it passes those hurdles, then, hey, we're going to do this thing. Um, yeah, so for testing, we do uh, already done a, a good amount of finite elements, so that's just computer simulation um, to see how um, the, the material should act, um, and then doing a proper real testing. Um, right now, uh, we would go to, I believe, in Victoria, they do the, they have a heart simulator there. We are trying to get a heart simulator in our lab um, now to be able to do all testing in-house. Um, but uh, as for uh, the next level, um, it is pretty, uh, you have to do a lot to be able to get to um, actual commercial use versus uh, in vivo. So just doing the heart simulator testing and then if it gets accepted there, then you can go forward and uh, work towards in, uh, uh, sorry, in vivo is in the person, in vitro first testing and then in vivo would be in actual patients doing clinical trials. Okay. Any idea, sort of roughly a timeline before to get to clinical trials? Are we talking a year or two? Any idea? Um, with this material, it's, it's really hard to say. I think that next breakthrough has to become um, has to come. Um, the material itself is a breakthrough in its own, but uh, to be able to get to in vivo testing, uh, we do need that endothelial layer to be attached to it. Um, but it is a, it's a great step forward in. Uh, making a, a, a synthetic material for uh, a valve. Now, my understanding is this thing falls in, in under sort of the transcatheter heart valve category, uh, which is a new branch of cardiology. Now, the old one, you'd crack open somebody's chest and you'd go in and, and do what you do. Uh, this procedure seems to be a little more sensitive to the human body, sort of smaller incisions. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's uh, actually where my um, research lies. What my thesis will be on is uh, uh, I'm designing a catheter-based heart valve. So a uh, catheter-based heart valve, instead of having um, to do an open-heart surgery, uh, they do it by all by catheter. So for different heart valves, they insert in different places, but basically they crimp down the valve to a, a very small diameter, and they're able to um, insert it via catheter up to the position. Um, this is meant for people who are unable to um, withstand an open-heart surgery, which um, between age and other uh, medical complications, there's a good, a fair amount of people in the world um, who are turned away from being able to do an open heart surgery. So this is where this um, they, these valves are meeting that unmet need um, in the in the industry um, right now. Uh, the aortic valve um, with the, the two valves that really have complications: the aortic and the mitral valve. The aortic has uh, uh, commercial options out there available. But for the mitral valve itself, there are no commercial options available. 
and uh, with there's just in the research and clinical stages. So there's a huge unmet need there that uh, there's a lot of people jockeying to be the first commercial option. Wow. Uh, so it sounds like exciting times, but uh, obviously uh, some more challenges ahead. But I wish you guys best of luck with it. Congratulations on, on the breakthrough so far, and I uh, hope you guys can get to the end of the road in this thing and get it out broadly used. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I just want to add that uh, our, our lab, the Heart Valve Performance Lab, we're the, the only academic or university in Canada that's actually devoted to uh, the development and design of next generation of these prosthetic valves. Um, so we're really proud of our work, and uh, it's not even just my research. There's plenty of people in my lab that are doing incredible research, too. So I'm, I'm more than proud of the, that I'm with. Fantastic. Uh, Dylan, thanks so much for taking some time to explain that. And again, congratulations. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you very much. That's Dylan Good. He's a graduate researcher at UBC Okanagan in the Heart Valve Performance Laboratory, as you just heard him say, uh, the only one in the country, apparently, with a major breakthrough when it comes to uh, uh, to heart surgeries. Uh, okay, we'll take a quick break here. On the other side, uh, more ripple effects of the Omer Cotter decision yesterday. Omer Cotter, certainly a lightning rod. Uh, we'll talk uh, to Sandy Garasino about uh, the latest decision, basically saying he served his time and why Mr. Cotter is such a lightning rod. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back. Yesterday, a judge said the eight-year sentence imposed in 2010 on Omer Cotter has essentially been time-served and he is released. That means a lot of conditions that were placed upon Mr. Cotter are now lifted. Uh, Mr. Cotter's story has been uh, in the spotlight to some degree for a few years here in Canada and has been a lightning storm. Uh, some people on one side with a lot of criticism, uh, other people on the other side saying perhaps uh, we need to take a breath here and let the rule of law play out. Uh, so we're bringing on Sandy Garasino now, who uh, has raised the question, after all of this, the journey by Mr. Cotter from Afghanistan to Guantanamo Bay, uh, and then back to Canada under the then Harper government to the latest legal decision yesterday, what is the question is, is he actually guilty? Good morning and welcome, Sandy. Good morning, and thanks for having me on, Shane. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. So uh, you've laid out the case that perhaps after all of this journey that we've been on, that Mr. Cotter uh, may not actually be guilty of this. Walk me through that. Well, I was always concerned. You know, I used to uh, I used to be a prosecutor and a youth prosecutor, and from the very beginning I was always troubled by this case, but I kind of just held, um, held my doubts in abeyance. And then as... As, uh, he, as he was released and there was the storm of controversy, I started to look through it. And in fact, everything about the prosecution's case is contradicted by their own evidence. And that includes his uh, Omar Cotter's confession. So just the, 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 in a nutshell, the essence of this is that, uh, is that two photographs that were taken by military uh, by the U.S. military to document the site in the aftermath of this firefight that resulted in the death of Sergeant Spear. Show, they actually show where Omar Cotter was found, uh, and apparently before he was found, and then after he was found. And those two photographs cannot possibly... The, the story of the prosecution that Omar Cotter threw the grenade, no witness saw him throw the grenade, but it was concluded that he must have been the person who did because of his position. 
uh, is flatly contradicted by this photograph that shows that uh, at the time that Cotter was found, he was buried in rubble, like fully buried, completely buried. The rubble appears to be, and as described in reports, as being a collapsed mud hut wall. Uh, and you can see it on in my article um, on the National Observer. That flies in the face of the only eyewitness that says that Cotter must have been the person who threw the grenade, because that person also says, I saw him um, leaning against some brush and I shot him in the back. Well, it's how can he have been shot in the back leaning against brush if he was fully buried face down under a collapsed wall? And if he was that and he was photographed by the U.S. military as being that, how could he have thrown a grenade eight feet in the air and then at least 80 and possibly as much as 120 or 150 feet uh, away to where Sergeant Spear was was uh, was mortally wounded. So, um, I mean, there's a lot going on here. Uh, as we as we know, um, Mr. Cotter was sent to Guantanamo Bay. As I recall, back in the day, the Harper government, uh, under duress, uh, finally allowed him to return to Canada. If we have what you describe in your in your article as as a hodgepodge of confusing and inconsistent positions, um, where did we go wrong here? Like, how how did this kid end up? serving so much time without anybody asking the question or saying, okay, well, let's take a look at the evidence. Um, you know, you've, you've outlined a pretty compelling case for, okay, the facts don't quite line up here. Matter of fact, in your story, for those who want to read it, there's about six or seven different versions of events. So where did it go off the rails? Well, I think it, I mean, it went off the rails pretty early and we have to go back in time and really remember what the background was. First of all, um, the U.S. military was under extraordinary pressure at the time that this started to become a real thing of trying Omar Khadr was about the time that the Abu Ghraib uh, uh, controversy was happening in Iraq. And in fact, the person who interrogated Omar Khadr and, and, and actually killed one other detainee under interrogation was then part of the whole Abu Ghraib. I don't know if people remember, but there was controversy about uh, mistreatment of prisoners in Iraq, uh, very comparable to what, what happened to Qatar and what happened to other people in Afghanistan. So there was so much emotion, and I think it really clouded everyone's judgment, and I think it also clouded politicians' judgment, the people who had responsibility to uh, impress upon all our allies the importance of the rule of law and that Canada was going to stand up for the rule of law and that we were not going to permit an, uh, a, a military tribunal uh, far away from the public eye, out of the public eye, to, to basically railroad this kid. Well, we did allow that to happen. In my opinion... Uh, had this been a real trial in open court, there's no question that Cotter would have been acquitted. But I also think it goes more than that. And this is not about a reasonable doubt. In my opinion, the evidence gathered by the U.S. military on the day that this happened, the reports that were written on the day and the photographs that were taken on the day are more consistent, in fact, almost conclusively consistent with innocence as to throwing the grenade that killed Sergeant Spear. 
Now, Mr. Cotter has received an apology from the government of Canada, also a, a $10 million uh, legal settlement. Um, he has been a firestorm of controversy in a lot of different ways. And, and uh, I guess a plain question to you, Sandy, I mean, if, if we are a country of the rule of law, if we stand up for democracy and we stand up for human rights and all this stuff, um, you know, did we fall down here? Did we let our biases or our perceptions uh, of some people get in the way of, of right versus wrong or, or no? Well, I, I think that we did, and I think that to a certain extent, or we, we still do. You know, feelings still run very high. We had a real and irrational um, fear of terrorism, and obviously, there was a Cotter came from a family that was closely linked to Al Qaeda. His own, his mother, his sisters were making sympathetic statements about uh, inflammatory statements. Uh, so there was, there was absolutely, it was in a way a perfect storm, don't you think, Shane? If we go back, there was so much fear. 2011 or 9/11 had happened. It had been uh, done by al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan, and here was this kid who was caught up in this. So I don't think this is like a clear case of, oh, people were really terrible, uh, and there were, there were terrible villains here. But I think that we allowed ourselves to be pulled along by the emotion and, the, and just the terrible, terrible circumstances and that Omar Khadr was a casualty. And people will point to his confession. Uh, I point to the fact that he was in a coma for a week after this incident, and I doubt that Omar Khadr has any independent recollection whatsoever of what happened if he was in a coma right after this, this firefight, and he was very, very badly wounded and traumatized. Uh, so I just don't, I don't see that the evidence is there, and I, and I really hope that Canadians will take a look at the actual circumstances and conclude, you know, and, and we went along with him effectively being railroaded into a not into a guilty plea. That's, I think, one of the most troubling aspects of this, is that guilty plea was his only exit from Guantanamo Bay, where other people are still there today. Yeah, and uh, we don't know what happened in Guantanamo Bay, but by all accounts, a bit of a hellhole institution. Um, really quick, because we're almost we're really out of time, but um, I see Conservative members of Parliament have tweeted pictures of Mr. Cotter apparently putting together an IED. Mr. Shear has said, listen, he needs to pay that money he's got in the legal settlement to the widow of the soldier he is accused of killing. Um, some of this is definitely dog whistle stuff, but why the polarization there? Well, I, I, the polarization is really obvious. It's easy. It's easy to point to um, a, this terrorist kid, and and uh, it's, it, it, but it's very disturbing. Andrew Shear knows full well that 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 was not a settlement. That was a verdict. The civil verdict was issued in a default judgment because the defendant was in Guantanamo Bay and unable to mount a defense to that case. I mean, it's ludicrous that any responsible member of government would point to that um, civil action as anything but a, but a complete kangaroo job, a kangaroo court job. That is ridiculous. All right. Sandy, appreciate the time and uh, appreciate your take on this. Thanks so much, Shane. That's Sandy Garasino, former trial lawyer, uh, currently a columnist of the National Observer. You can take a look at her story. Uh, definitely worth a read. And we'll take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to break into the Mueller report with Jeffrey Myers. 
Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Good morning, I'm Bill Callen with the latest from the NL Newsroom. With the Sagebrush Theatre down, the executive director of the Kamloops Symphony Orchestra is hopeful the latest push for a performing arts centre in Kamloops will be successful. Kathy Humphrey saying she's hopeful something happens soon. Most people that I run into in the community say, well, this just shows you, you know, what happens when you only have one venue and there's no place for people to go and sure makes it obvious that something has to be done. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined as we are every Tuesday by lawyer and TRU lecturer Jeffrey Myers. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm well. Good. Uh, listen, um, I've been looking forward to this chat probably ever since the news broke over the weekend and uh, caused uh, some serious ripple effects that we're, we're still experiencing today and likely will for a little while. But uh, Mr. Mueller has finished his report and uh, rendered a verdict, which is essentially no evidence of collusion with Russia. Uh, that said, we haven't seen this thing. We don't know what's in this report, but that seems to be what we're getting from Mr. Barr. Uh, and then he may have just laid out on the obstruction side, listen, here's the legal case, and left it up to the Attorney General, William Barr, to decide on that, which his decision has been that there's there's nothing worth going after there. So uh, your take on all of this? Well, I mean, I think that as you've done it fairly well, sort of, in terms of really encapsulating what we do and don't know, and I think, you know, we really want to emphasize that we have very little information right now and all kinds of reasons uh, to be skeptical and to not draw conclusions. Uh, the first point that I would make um, is the fact that, you know, we do ha- all we have is this four-page letter that's been drafted by the Attorney General, Mr. Barr, and, uh, and the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, who effectively were overseeing the Mueller investigation and to whom the report effectively was owed, right? Uh, and as you say, the, what we know for certain is that they, the, at least this is what Mr. Mueller has, uh, Mr. Barr has said in his letter, is that there was no sufficient evidence to rise to the level of a conspiracy, which would show a kind of um, coordination of Trump or people around him uh, on the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt with suggest that that happened. They said they couldn't make that connection. And now, secondly, on the question of obstruction, and I'll remind your your listeners that um, obstruction of justice is, is irre- to be um, found guilty of obstruction of justice, you don't have to be successful in the obstruction itself. It, it doesn't even mean that you don't have to, the underlying charges don't even have to have merit. If you know there's a criminal proceeding going on and you have corrupt intent in terms of trying to obstruct it, that's usually sufficient. Clearly, by all accounts, the um, Mueller investigation struggled over this uh, question and ultimately decided that they were going to say that they weren't prepared to recommend um, indictment. That's clearly the case because it's been the position of the Department of Justice and Mr. Mueller himself to candidate a sitting president. But separate and apart from them, they say they were going to leave the question of whether there was obstruction uh, to the determination um, of the Attorney General. And not surprisingly, uh, the Attorney General, who obviously is a very partisan figure, uh, and his appointment was sort of tainted around uh, the issue of being outspoken on it before he assumed office, took the position that, lo and behold, what do you know, uh, there is no obstruction of justice, right? And then the Trump White House declared, Mr. Trump in particular, declared unmitigated victory, and Mr. Uh, Giuliani was out there demanding that Mr. Trump's foes apologize to him. But the truth is, is the American people and the world can't simply take on trust 
that, in fact, in a period of less than 48 hours, Mr. Barr and Mr. Rosenstein read, I think, the over 600 pages of the report and distilled its very essence into four pages in an objective and neutral fashion, which was in no way designed uh, to protect or make the president look good. And again, particularly this uh, one quote that comes from the Mueller report, which says that Mr. Mueller is not saying that, that there's been no wrongdoing whatsoever. He's just saying he's not guilty. That's a very ambiguous thing to say. I mean, the first thing I think when I look at that is, I mean, I think Ms. Mr. Mueller might be in for some criticism now because his job, I think, was to make a judgment around not only whether there was collusion, which he did make a judgment on, but also, and again, as I say, not a legal term, but uh, a reference to underlying crime of conspiracy and the political idea of collusion. But then, secondarily, on the question of obstruction of justice, which is usually what removes presidents from office, rather than sort of drawing a final opinion, he said he, was, he basically left it ambiguous and left it up to the attorney general to decide. And of course, as I say, they decided no. So I think that's troubling. I think the calls by uh, 420 members of Congress of both parties and of the committee chairs of the six committees uh, who are also investigating Mr. Trump to have that report um, uh, revealed in full is a valid one. And, you know, I think that uh, there's going to be a strong desire for that. I think the fact that Nancy Pelosi said she's not really interested in having the details of the report revealed in camera and that she wants them to be public, I think there's going to be significant pressure to bear. Uh, and I think we really have to reserve judgment until, A, we have a chance as a members of the public, and particularly American voters have a chance, and lawyers and legal scholars and, and commentators have a chance, and elected officials have a chance to look at the report and draw their own conclusions, right? And it's not, it's too premature to do that based on the sort of word of uh, the Attorney General and the summary that's been given over, and it's going to depend how much, if the report is released, and the Attorney General said it will be, what are the redactions, what are the basis of the redactions, um, and, you know, again, as part of the investigatory power that the various um, congressional uh, committees have, as well as the fact that some parts of the investigation have been handed on to other federal courts, like the Southern District of New York, and also the state court, like, for example, the Manhattan uh, District Attorney, um, those investigations have pieces of this which will go forward and will be of interest to the American people. These will just the, the Mueller report in this sense is, is only a part of the puzzle. The conclusions that are being drawn here are really premature. I think the uh, I think the question you're referring to in the report was this one, and I'll just do a direct quote here. Mm. While this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it does not exonerate yeah, him. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. That's language. And that's like the one quote that we got from the Department of Justice in their summary. And that's a weird quote to me. I mean, again, that, that strikes me as very strange because the purpose of Mr. Mueller's remit was to investigate, you know, a commission, but any other crimes which occurred as a result of that, particularly, of course, the most obvious one is obstruction. So I think sort of punting on that, um, again, I'm looking forward to hearing, and I'm, I would imagine that ultimately they're going to try, the Congress will try to subpoena Mr. Mueller, and I think, again, in the fullness of history, all the facts will come out. But I'm really wondering about what the thinking behind that was. The only possible theory I can have as to why uh, Mr. Mueller did that is because people forget the fact is that he's a reasonably um, conservative Republican lifelong Department of Justice lawyer who, you know, doesn't want to overstep the boundaries of his role and probably thought, you know, where you're on the borderline between making this assessment, we'll leave it to the Attorney General and decided to be very conservative in that because contrary to what Mr. Uh, Trump has been saying every day for the last two years, it never was a witch hunt. Um, so that's, I mean, that would be the only kind of cautious conclusion that I would draw at this point. Beyond that, I think anything is um, totally premature. And the idea that, you know, people who've been critical of Mr. Trump and who've commented on the very public record of his abuses of power, as well as the 
many, many indictments, guilty pleas, and convictions uh, that special counsel has gotten of key advisors and people high up in the Trump campaign. I don't think those people were out of line or they have anything to apologize for or they've been in a, involved in a conspiracy. I think it's very disingenuous and confusing for the American public and, in fact, for the world for Mr. Trump to now say, oh, I've been totally exonerated and, you know, there's no, uh, you know, clearly in the sense he's got something to hang on to where he can say that, that at least this is what the, Mr. Barr is saying, that there's no collusion. Again, let's take a look at the report and see what conclusions we can draw. But it's, it's preliminary to be saying that, but certainly on the obstruction of justice question, clearly finessing the, langu- the little bit of language we already know from the report. So you've got to suspend judgment completely at this stage. Uh, maybe you could just sort of uh, clarify something for, for me and, and the listeners. Uh, here in Canada, we would have, you know, police would investigate a crime uh, and they would forward their information to a Crown Council and Crown Council would decide charges. I note in the, in the second page of, of the letter uh, issued by Mr. Barr uh, on the obstruction of justice issue, he says, yes. uh, but uh, he ultimately determined not to make a traditional prosecu- prosecutorial yes. judgment. Yes. The special counsel therefore did not draw a conclusion one way or the other as to whether the exam and conduct of constitutional obstruction, etc., uh, etc. Et um, if this is if this isn't traditional, how how should it have gone down from a legal perspective? In, in my opinion, I mean, again, with the information we have now, it that does strike me that line alone, which I assume is not a misquote. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm interested. I have, a, from what I, all by all accounts, Mr. Mueller is a very competent jurist and a very honest individual. I have no reason to question that. I would like to hear what his reasoning is behind it. Doesn't make sense to me. And there's already been some commentary among um, other lawyers in the U.S. who are close observers of these matters who've, you know, said that it's odd, because why would you punt on this kind of central question of importance for Congress in terms of determining the appropriateness of impeachment, which is really a major corollary of why you were appointed. And the only possible explanation I can come up with is that he's played this in a very, very conservative way to be absolutely beyond reproach uh, and to, um, you know, where he was on the fence or he was worried about overstepping the bounds. And I don't think it was overstepping the bounds. Again, I think you could say it's dodging it, but giving him the benefit of the doubt he left it with with um, Mr. Barr, who I know, you know, some people have speculated that Mr. Mueller withheld releasing the report until Mr. Barr was appointed because he had a more of a trusting relationship with Mr. Uh, Barr, with whom he had worked and had mutual respect for than he did with Matthew Whitaker, the interim um, attorney general. But I think that trust was misplaced if it was there, because I think the fact of how Mr. Uh, Barr behaved in terms of auditioning for the job and going on all the TV shows and Sunday mornings and saying the Mueller investigation had no basis in terms of writing an unsolicited memo to the Department of Justice criticizing the Mueller Department. He was effectively auditioning for the job. And, um, you know, he was cagey when questioned about it by Congress. So I think, there, you know, we just have to be, um, you know, without impugning anybody's good faith, we have to be very skeptical of everything that we see. Okay, Jeff, I'll get you to hold that thought. We're going to continue our discussion of the Mueller report, the finished Mueller report, right after this with Jeffrey Myers. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. 
Welcome back to the Woodford Show. We're going to continue our discussion now on a finished Mueller report and what we do know and what we don't know with TRU lecturer and lawyer Jeffrey Myers. We have this report, this big complex report handed over, mm-hmm. uh, and 24 hours later, we have a decision that, that okay, he's laid out these, these yeah. complicated legal arguments on obstruction on both sides yeah. and left it up for them to make the call. Yeah. And in less than 24 hours, yeah. they decided there's nothing there. And I note the last line in, in the in this third paragraph on the second page, uh, our determination was made without regard to and is not based on the constitutional considerations that surround the indictment and criminal prosecution of a sitting president. I mean, legal arguments alone, not to mention factoring in the president's office, um, I don't know, my knee-jerk reaction would be that that is all complicated stuff and we should probably take more than 24 hours to determine whether there is or is not anything there on the obstruction side. Well, there's a lot in your question there. Let me just separate out a couple of the bits. I mean, one of the bits of the question you're asking is, I think, just the, the basic point of um, how could they conclude so rapidly what's effectively going to be a very long, we would think would be a very long report um, to make these conclusions. That in itself is suspect. And I mean, I agree with you. It's quite hasty. There was significant pressure there. I think that they want to have the appearance of being forthright without necessarily coming out with everything right away. So, I mean, I'm skeptical of that as well. On that last line in the... Uh, uh, in the um, letter that you describe, uh, what the what they're saying is that when they made when they made the determination as to whether or not, based on their reading of the report, again, and we can be skeptical of that, that there w- that they didn't think it rose to the level of um, obstruction of justice for purposes of indictment, and then they said they're not considering the fact of the president's immunity and making that consideration. I mean, all they're saying there is saying we're we've maintained we, we, we've always maintained and we still maintain that a president sitting president can't be uh, indicted again. That's the position of the Justice Department writ large. They're saying, however, even measuring him against the standard of an indictment for a normal person, this wouldn't rise to the level of obstruction of justice. That's the judgment of Mr. Barr. Okay, that's not necessarily the judgment of Mr. Mueller. And we need to take a look at the report. Uh, one of the things I just want to mention, just insert in here too, is. You know, one of the concerns has been, um, and it's a real concern as a lawyer, I, I view this as a genuine concern, is that, for example, if you have, um, if you have um, part of the evidence that the Mueller report looked at was things that happened in a grand jury, right? And what a grand jury are is it's a group of people who hear evidence that prosecutors have to um, try somebody for a crime without the presence of the accused or their lawyer just hearing the prima facie case, and then they make a judgment based on that whether to impanel an actual jury and have a trial. That's something we don't have in Canada, but they do have in the United States. Traditionally, the details and information surrounding what comes out of the grand jury are not exposed uh, to public scrutiny for good reason, because if people are fa- if there's not enough evidence found to go ahead with the prosecution, you don't want to taint people's good names, right? Um, but in this situation where a lot of the crimes I think we're talking about are subject to political oversight in Congress and are less questions of criminal justice, I think all of these details, because of the public importance, are important for everyone to have, including the public and Congress, to make assessments around impeachment, right? So, again, some of the basis is you might not normally produce all of the underlying decision-making or exercises of discretion in the case of a regular private accused and a regular criminal process, those arguments don't necessarily apply with the same force and effect in a situation like this, right? And we don't, we certainly don't want uh, to have a situation where folks are, you know, looking at the outcome of the Mueller report as interpreted through Mr. Barr uh, and what I suggest may be some biased goggles and think that, you know, everything that they have observed themselves in real time, um, you know, Mr. Trump's uh, appearance on uh, Lester Holt, uh, as well as things that he said in tweets, as well as, you know, his conduct at the 
the Helsinki meeting that those are that those were uh, optical illusions that those weren't real things that happened. I mean, people we have observed in real time a person who's very clear and forthright about what he's doing. And in my opinion, if you look at the definition of obstruction of justice, right, that it, it, what it requires is that you obstruct an ongoing investigation or some kind of criminal process with corrupt intent. And I think what the um, what the special counsel, from what I can read between the leaves, again on the spin that Mr. Barr has put on it, is that they could they didn't think they could prove that corrupt intent uh, corrupt intent beyond a reasonable doubt, despite the fact that clearly they demonstrated um, criminal behavior on behalf of people very close to Mr. Trump. But I think it's certainly reasonable for Congress to say we haven't got a conclusive answer on this and we want to investigate this in our own right for impeachment purposes. But clearly, this is going to give a boost to the argument, which is the dominant argument in the Democratic Party. Uh, that there shouldn't be uh, impeachment, and this is not a reasonable basis for impeachment to proceed. And for that reason, obviously, the president and his allies are celebrating. And uh, to play on that, um, I'll just quote you this a tweet that I retweeted about a couple hours ago. I found it very interesting from, <clears throat> from Kyle Griffin, who retweeted the Daily Beast. And it just says, mm-hmm. a source with direct knowledge of the investigation told the Daily Beast that it was their interpretation that Mueller was making a case to Congress who, unlike the uh, DOJ in Mueller's view, is empowered to weigh the lawfulness uh, of a president's conduct. I, I think so, and I think, and I think I would add to that. I would say that the lawfulness of a, of a president's conduct, in terms of the way the, the the Constitution describes it, is like high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, it, it's not necessarily on the same standard um, that you would need for a criminal conviction, right? And it's it's um, it, 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 it's also the Congress and the the Constitution protects also that ultimately that question is triable by the Senate acting on impeach articles of impeachment from Congress to make. Make its own independent decision, right? So again, and I think, um, and and I think it, it may be again that that, that I think that's a good tweet, an insightful comment. And I think that the point, what I'm saying is that may explain what Mueller is trying to do. He's trying to say, look, Congress is going to need to take a lead and make some judgments on this. So perhaps if any mistake um, on the kind of never-Trumper side uh, can be said to have occurred before we have any more evidence, it's that everybody had hoped that Mueller would kind of deliver America from the long nightmare that was Trump and would um, give uh, trigger impeachment. But the problem is, what he's saying is ultimately... I think maybe one way to read what we what we now know, and again, it's only limited, is that it's really up to Congress. Can't you know? Maybe Mueller is punting because he's saying, "You Congress, you can't punt this to me." Ultimately, you have to make a determination on whether there's obstruction of justice for this to be a kind of viable uh, question, as a because really only you have oversight uh, capacity over um, over the president according to the Constitution. Uh, that again, you know, I, I guess that's that's the argument. And I guess my last question here, Jeffrey, is and as as a as a media person, one of the things I'm really sort of hyper cognizant of these days yeah. is the the super quick knee jerk reaction to everything. I mean, we have a report that's taken months and months and uh, thousands of hours of man time and criminal yeah. prosecutions and all that. I mean, it's yeah. a complicated report. Uh, in the basis of 48 hours, you have a bunch yeah. of people who have an interest in it in one way or the other, yeah. dialing in and saying uh, one take or the other. And on the Trump side of the equation, it's complete exoneration. Uh, this whole issue is put to bed. Uh, we're all done here. What a shame. Okay, door closed. Uh, from your perspective, I mean, it's obviously much more complicated than that, but how do we proceed from here? Is, is this is this the end per se or no? 
Well, first we have to demand, or I should say we, I should say the American public and Congress will have to demand that the report be published and that, you know, any kind of redactions or whatever be examined very closely uh, for their, to determine their, um, you know, their rightness. But all other reports um, of, you know, by, um, um, you know, special counsel go, again, even though under slightly different statutory regimes, have all been released in full uh, or largely in full to the public in the form of bound volumes which are freely available for everybody to look at them. And you can remember the Star Report. So until we have the full Mueller report, until co- Congress has that and there are public, uh, there's public visibility around this, and probably until after the Congress exercises some of its subpoena powers to bring in people like Bob Mueller to ask further questions and follow up on, that's the kind of scrutiny that people should expect and what we should want before we can make any kind of determinations about this. But obviously, um, you know, these, uh, the, the, the um, you know, <laughs> It's, it's going to be ongoing. There's no way around it. It's not the silver bullet that people had wanted for. If Mueller had said, you know, there was clearly obstruction of justice, maybe that would have been. But it's all speculation of what would happen. We can't have, like, a fantasy. We have to be realistic about this. But I think that, uh, you know, I think that the, the Democrats are going to have to focus the attention of the American people on the things that they have observed in a completely transparent manner about Mr. Trump's behavior and comportment while in office and determine if they think that right raises to the level of impeachment. And maybe it doesn't for some American people. Obviously, that's the consensus of the Democratic leadership. So what they're going to do is they're going to run against it in the election. And will Mr. Trump, for his part, try to spin this as a victory? Yes, he will. Um, so what's coming now? Well, in many ways, more of the same. But I would suggest that the sense of urgency around having that report released as fully as possible to the public as soon as possible should be maintained because that if if that if if uh, the AG is able to sort of withhold major aspects of that report and nobody ever gets to scrutinize it, I think that could be a major a major major problem. Interesting times as always, Jeffrey. Uh, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. Hey Shane, thanks for being on. I look forward to speaking to you next week. That was Jeffrey Myers, lawyer, TRU lecturer, breaking down a finished Mueller report and what we don't know and what we do know, and there seems to be a lot more of the former than the latter. And that's it for today's edition of the Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswap from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.